<laughs> Are these for me? Cough drops. And is this open or unopened? I don't want to drink that if it's open. I don't know. It, it is remarkable how God does seem to empower his people to proclaim his word even when they feel uh, kind of hit by a bus. Um, that's kind of where I was at yesterday. But God gives strength for today. Before we begin, a few comments, prefatory comments. Um, before we get into 1 Corinthians this morning, I wanted, to, I wanted to comment about what we've been talking about because I think it's important. For the past two weeks, we've been talking about sexual morality in the church. Beginning today, this sermon's going to kind of move on from that in, in regards We'll move on from that topic, but, but I believe, and some of you may wish we would move on, but I, I, want us, I want us to, in a sense, know that this is just the beginning of the conversation. I think this is the discussion the church needs to, to have more regularly, more frequently, because I think, as I said a few weeks ago, the, the issue of sexual immorality, when I use that phrase, we're talking about pornography, addictions, lust fill in the blank, adultery, all that. I think that's one of the greatest reasons why the church, particularly men, but also women, why the church is failing to make disciples. And I think given our mission, our mission as a church is to make disciples, that we need to do everything in our power to remove the obstacles that keep us from making disciples, that keep us from living faithfully to Christ. And to doing all, as we'll see this morning, to the glory of God. So with that, what, what I just wanted to say this morning is simply this, that, that, is that I see that there, there's a tendency with a sermon series, you cover a topic and then you move on because the text moves on and we want to faithfully explain the scripture and, and walk through the book. But at the same time, I believe this is important enough that I don't quite have all the details worked out yet. But it's something that I want us to revisit. So sometime I reached out to a friend who's written a book um, I haven't confirmed whether he's able to uh, come or not, but I want to, basically the short of it is I want to revisit this. So if you struggle with this, in some respects you're not off the hook, but that's a good thing. It's a good thing because we need to continue to address these issues. So I want to, I'm not sure what it will look like, but after the holidays, maybe sometime in January, I'd love to see uh, maybe a group of people get together to bond together, to hold each other accountable, to pray for one another, to seek the Lord for his mercy and grace and help on this. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I just wanted to say that, that we're not done. These are, we want to stick with addressing the issues that are a challenge to the church. We want to face them head on in the hope that even though these, these sins are great and they're weighty and they're hard, um, I've, I've heard good feedback from people. I've actually had people come up after these sermons and confess, confess their sins to me, but that's not enough. We need to keep confessing our sins. We need to hold one another accountable. We need to move forward as brothers and sisters of Christ. We as the church must never allow, we must never tolerate these sins among us. We must pursue, part of pursuing purity as a church is not just moving on from a sermon series when that sermon topic is over but keeping it in discussion, keeping it in the forefront. So I say that just to say that hopefully sometime in January or February, around that time after the holiday settle down, that we'll revisit this as a church to, to see how we can help encourage one another. Again, it gets back to the gospel. Our sin is great. We need to see that. Our Savior is greater. We need to believe that. Let's go to the sermon this morning. 
1 Corinthians, we're going to skip up the 10. I'm going to explain why in a minute. Don't look now. Don't turn around. All right, don't turn around. But someone is watching you. Kind of terrifying, isn't it? A little creepy. Someone is always watching you. Especially if you're a parent. That is the terrifying thing. You're never supposed to do the bad things because your kids are watching you. How many of us have done something, and and I, I can think of countless times where I've done something stupid, and my wife says, why are you doing that? Oh, my kids are too young. Only for them to repeat exactly what I did that very moment, and for me to realize I am really fool. My, parents, my kids are watching. How much more so as a follower of Christ are people watching? Do you realize that that moment that it comes up in conversation, whether it's an unbelieving friend or neighbor, and he finds out you're a follower of Christ, that automatically things get a little weird? They get a little awkward? It happens to me as a pastor all the time. That's why I don't like kind of announcing myself as a pastor. Because the moment you announce yourself as a pastor, it's like this morning when I went into the, um, the, the meeting for the worship team and they, they mentioned, how are you doing? I said, I'm still feeling sick. Immediately the entire room shifted <laughs> away from me. It, it's, it's like this, that same thing when they find out you're a pastor. They immediately shift away from you. Because for what you represent, um, for good or for bad. We don't really give much thought to people watching us. You know, sometimes you get that, that impression, that feeling that someone is staring at you awkwardly across the room. But generally, day in and day out, we don't really give it much thought. We usually don't think much about it. But as followers of Christ... People are watching. Whether they know you are a follower of Christ or not, whether you live in such a way that you seem different or not, people are watching you. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning, the question I believe Paul asked this morning, is how do we live before the watching world? How are we living? How are we reflecting, if we're reflecting at all, the image of Christ before the watching world. This question is important because how we live before the watching world reveals what we believe about God. The way we live is either going to bring glory to God or dishonor to God. There's no middle ground in our life. There's no, well, there's no option C. There's only glorifying God by our life or dishonoring God by our life. The goal of Paul, and as he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33, is that we are to live our lives in such a way for the glory of God. Specifically, he says, living our lives to the glory of God is living life on the mission of God. In other words, we, we tend to, we'll talk about in a second, how we tend to isolate this passage and say it's just about living to the glory of God and therefore we should live and we keep it kind of ambiguous. We don't really fill out the details. But really what Paul says is we live out the glory of God before a watching world. We live out to the glory of God before people. 
We reflect his glory to others. See, part of our living to the glory of God is our missionary calling. When we are to make disciples of, G- of others, that is part of how we give glory to God. And it's also as we live our lives, we are to give glory to God. It's our missionary calling. Living out the hope of Jesus' gospel. If we're to do that, we must seek to do all to the glory of God. Eating, drinking, whatever we do. It takes on a missionary focus when we do it to the glory of God. Living life to the glory of God is living life before the world on mission of God. That's the theme of this passage, verses chapter 10, 23 to 30. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. Chapter 23. Chapter 10. This is one of those sermons where he's like, you could tell, like, the pastor's sick. <laughs> chapter 10, 23 to 33. Two points. To give God glory, we must seek our neighbor's good. We must seek our neighbor's good. We'll see that in verses 23 to 30. The second point is that we are to do all for the glory of God, verses 31 to 33. The question again is how do we live before a watching world? Brothers and sisters, if we claim to follow Jesus Christ, we must live to the glory of God by seeking the good of our neighbors. The glory of God is not just this general thing that's out there that we do. It's intentionally for the good of our neighbors. There's a missional focus, if we use that word missional, a missionary focus to living for the glory of God. We don't live just for the glory of God. We live for the glory of God for the good of our neighbors. There's a twofold aspect of loving God and loving our neighbors wrapped in. So let's take a look at Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 10. Beginning at verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. And verse, chapter 11, verse 1, we're going to add, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now some of you may be thinking, wow, he just skipped over a whole lot of Scripture. Chapter 6, 
half of it, all of chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and most of chapter 10. What gives? I don't really like doing that either. But the focus of this sermon series is on identity in Christ, and I feel, here's the, here's the, the good thing. I don't like skipping large sections, but I believe this passage of Scripture is a summary of chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, and chapter 10. It's a summary because those chapters where Paul talks about marriage and sex and singleness in chapter 7, he calls the church to glorify God and how you relate to one another. That's glorifying God with your bodies. When he discusses food, sacrifice to idols in chapter 8, and surrendering his rights as apostle in chapter 9, his overarching theme is God's glory. When he commands the Corinthians to flee from idolatry in chapter 10, the overarching theme is what? God's glory. It's all for the sake of God's glory. Everything through chapter 6 through chapter 10 is about God's glory. So in that sense, verses 23 to 33 of chapter 10 serve as a kind of summary. How are we, the church of God, to live? That's what he answers in 6 through 10 to the glory of God. Hopefully one day we'll get back to finish the book, but for this morning, it is the focus on the glory of God. And it begins with seeking the good of your neighbor. Verse 23 to 30 again. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. We just saw that phrase last week. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. That was back in chapter 6, verse 12. Paul there is developing in chapter 6 a theology of his bodies, saying there, it's good to do certain things, like eat queso. There's lawful to eat queso, but if you eat too much queso, it's not helpful. And he says, you have been bought with a price, so you're to glorify God with your bodies. The passage before us, continues that theme of glorifying God. It's all about Christ's lordship, and he's applying it. He's applying the lordship of Christ to how we live before a watching world. And remember, they are watching. Specifically, he uses the example of hospitality. Have you ever been invited to an unbeliever's house? I hope so. I hope you have invited unbelievers to your house. That's part of our mission. Imagine being invited to an unbeliever's house. They prepared a dinner for you, but you're a little bit worried about the food. You're not sure if at one time it's been sacrificed to idols. Not really a problem today, right? We don't worry. We may be worried about the food for other reasons. Well, I don't know if I'm going to like that or I'm not, I'm not going to agree with that. But we don't worry about whether food was sacrificed to idols. See, back then, for the early Christians, this was a serious problem. There would be food sacrificed to idols. And basically, to eat food sacrificed to idols before an unbelieving world would basically to say, to give your acceptance of idolatry. To say it's okay. It would be ultimately to appear as a betrayal of the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
So Paul writes to clear up this dilemma. He says, all things are lawful. Yes, even your food, one sacrifice to an idol, it's okay to eat it under this one condition. It doesn't interfere and impinge upon anyone's conscience. So he says, don't ask questions about what you eat. Enjoy it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, your conscience is clear, your witness is secure. But the condition, if your host or someone at the dinner happens to mention that the food set before you is sacrificed to idols, you are not to partake. Why? It's still pure. It's still lawful. The food's okay. Whether it's sacrificed or not doesn't change the nature of the food. What Paul says, no, the issue is really that person's conscience. If they brought it up and made a big deal about it, then they want to see what you're doing. They are watching you. Because back then, in this context, if they knew if a Christian were to eat this food, sacrifice the idol, and knew it, and the person who served it knew it and announced it, it would be saying, Christ doesn't matter. It would be accepting idolatry. This was the problem that the early church, one of the problems they faced. So for the sake of that person's conscience, you say, I will not eat it. Now Paul says back in chapter 8, idols are nothing. There is only one true God. But Paul is worried about the conscience of the unbeliever who has invited them to dinner. If they mention that the food was sacrificed to idols, then for the sake of their conscience, don't eat it. Again, the driving force of Paul is verse 24. Seek the good of your neighbor. And this is where the application flows for us. There are countless applications. Seek the good of your neighbor. Very possibly this week, as we celebrate Thanksgiving together, we'll be around the table of, with unbelievers. Seek the good of your neighbor. Maybe that could, it could play out in so many different ways. Maybe bringing up politics would be a good thing for that group. Maybe, more than likely though, bringing up politics would actually be a bad thing for that group and would not be seeking the good of your neighbor. Because we don't want a follower of Christ to get all riled up at politics in front unbelievers because what does it do? It makes us, it brings shame to Christ, not glory to him. The whole idea here is that our focus in giving glory to God, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, we should be seeking the good of our neighbor. And again, I can't give a bullet points of what applications are because they're countless. I can guarantee you this week you will probably have an opportunity to seek the good of your neighbor. Give God glory in that. Seek their good. Worry about their conscience. Think about it from their perspective. Consider how they're viewing things. Seek the good of your neighbor. It's a focus we all must have before the watching world, but here is why. This is where Paul gets to the heart of it. In verses 31, really going on to 11, chapter 11, verse 1. We are to do all for the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink 
or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I think with these verses, the church has generally fallen into two traps. Verse 31 is very well known and used often. If we've been in church for any length of time, many of us are familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism's question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? Sadly, that's often the only question and answer we know of that catechism. But it's still a good one. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But this is where it gets to the two problems. The first is we tend to take verse 31 out of context. We tend to isolate. Yes, we are to do all for the glory of God, but we take it out of the context. And secondly, we don't really know what it means to glorify God, do we? Glorify God? We keep using that phrase, but do we really know what it means? Let's first look at what it means to glorify God. What does it practically look like? I want to enlist the help of two of my, some of my favorite theologians. One a modern day theologian and then another an old Puritan theologian. But let's begin with John 8.12. In John 8.12, Jesus says he is the light of the world. And Hebrews tells that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. So my modern day theologian, John Frame, says to glorify God is to reflect that light wherever we are so that we image God more perfectly so that people everywhere can see Jesus in us. Here's what he's saying. We reflect God to the world. The moon standing out beautifully in the night sky has no light of its own. It's simply reflecting the light of the sun. This is how we glorify God. We reflect his light, his beauty, his radiance, and his glory. The goal of our reflecting is that people everywhere can see Jesus in us. We bear witness to God by reflecting his glory to others. In other words, glorifying God is a missionary, or if you want to use the fancy phrase, missional endeavor. Glorifying God is for God's glory, but it's also for others' good. We glorify God to reflect his glory to others. And I think this is where we have tended to take verse 31 out of context. So Paul tells the Corinthian church to do all for the glory of God. He is telling them to do all for the glory of God for the sake of the gospel mission. So that the gospel may go out in power. That the, the bloody sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ would be lifted up. That the power of the Spirit working in our hearts and minds will be reflected in such a magnificent way that men and women who do not believe would look at our lives and say, what is the reason for the hope within you? And we can say, it is Jesus Christ, my Lord, my King. And we heard those testimonies this morning of how do we get up day in and day out because of the goodness of God. 
We reflect the glory of God for God's glory, but for the sake of others. Paul says specifically, so that others might be saved. So here's the significance for us. Church, do you realize that if we do whatever we do, whether it's eating or drinking, we do it for the glory of God for the sake of others? Yes, we do it for God's glory, and that is a great and high task in and of itself. But it's not just for God's glory. Paul's point is that we glorify God for the sake of others. We reflect the image of God for the sake of others. We act like Jesus for the sake of others. This is about, for Paul, our witness. We glorify God. We are shine as the radiant sun Jesus shines. We let it reflect out to others and they see the glory of Christ in our own lives. Of course, that raises the question, are we really that radiant? Are we really shining the light of Christ as we should? The Puritan Thomas Watson is also helpful here. He talks about how when we give glory to God, we are ascribing glory to him. God is already infinitely glorious. We don't add glory to God We only ascribe it to him. We attribute it to him. We declare it to him. I like what Watson says. To ascribe glory to God is nothing else but our lifting up his name in the world and magnifying him in the eyes of others. So what he is saying is that we, brothers and sisters, if we claim to be a follower of Christ, if we seek to give God glory, our lives are a magnifying glass that the world looks through. And what do they see? Are they seeing Jesus as infinitely great? Are they seeing God as great and greatly to be praised? He is altogether glorious. He is altogether lovely. He is altogether wonderful. When we glorify him, we lift up his name in the world. We magnify him in the eyes of others. Glorifying God is making much of God. Do our lives, whether we eat, whether we drink very mundane tasks, Whatever we do, do they make much of God? Do our neighbors see us making much of God? This time of Thanksgiving is an opportunity, church, for us around the table with our unbelieving friends and families to make much of God. Are we going to take it? Do we live our lives in such a way that God is glorified? God is magnified. God is lifted up. God is God seen as beautiful in your life. Do people look at you and see the radiance and the glory of Christ reflecting back? How does this practically work out? How do we practically glorify God with a missionary focus? This is where it gets really hard. Because here's the answer. How, do, how does this practically play out? What it play out? What does this look like? We must humbly forfeit our rights to seek the good of others. We humbly forfeit our rights 
to seek the good of others. That's what Paul does here. Look at how Paul sought to give glory to God in verses 32 and 33. He gives no offense to the Jews. No offense to the Greeks. No offense to anyone in the church. What does he seek to do? He seeks to please everyone in everything he does. He does not seek his own advantage or his own good. In fact, he gives up his right to eat. It's lawful. He gives up his right to eat for the sake of the good of others. So here's where it gets really hard. Living to the glory of God is about giving up our rights and our freedom in God. We have freedom in Christ to eat whatever. All things are lawful, but we don't flaunt that freedom. When I was in college, I had a a good friend who was addicted before college, who was addicted to, he was a cocaine and crack addict. Alcohol was serious issues. And Later, in my, towards the last few years of college, I discovered freedom in Christ. Oh, I can go have a drink of alcohol. I can go take a beer. I have a beer. It's okay. Again, drunkenness is the sin. One beer is okay. I have the freedom in Christ to do that. So a couple of us, in our, in our somewhat arrogant way, we went out to a, a local tavern. I think this was after college because we weren't allowed to drink during college. That would have been breaking the law of the college. So we go out to kind of celebrate and I'm sitting there looking at my friend next to me who has a, a 10-year history of cocaine and crack and alcohol addiction. And we're all getting ready to order. And it struck me at that moment, if I were to order, yes, I have the freedom in Christ to drink something at that point, but how foolish would it be for me to drink in front of my brother who had all that history. So this is not to lift me up, but I just grabbed a Pepsi, and he and I drank a Pepsi together. Yes, I had the freedom to do that, but it would have been sinful to me for the sake of his conscience to actually drink alcohol in front of him. And this is what Paul is saying. Surrender your rights for the sake of others, and doing so, you give glory to God. In chapter 9, verse 19, which we didn't look at, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Do you see Paul's missionary focus? Why does he give up his rights? Why does he refuse to drink the beer at the tavern in front of his addicted friend? He does so for the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel, so that he can be a Christian witness. How many of you this week will interact with unbelievers who what you do, whether you eat or drink, could either give glory to God or offense to the gospel? We need to be mindful of what we're doing in the company of those who don't believe. Paul says this is our missionary focus. I become a servant. Brothers and sisters, become servants for the sake of those who do not yet believe. Paul says he will do everything in his power so that they might be saved. He's focused on the gospel, the good news of Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, 
and powerful resurrection. His focus is on God's glory, but his focus is evangelistically on God's glory. His focus is missionally on God's glory. His focus is that God would be glorified so that people would be saved. I love the book of Ezekiel, and throughout Ezekiel there's the phrase that the name of the Lord would be known. At the end of each chapter, it talks about the glory of God and his name being known. Almost each, at the end of each chapter in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel begins with that wonderful, beautiful, mind-blowing vision of the glory of God. That his name would be known. God's glory is directly tied with God's mission of making his name famous. And what does Paul say to the Corinthian church and to us? This is one of those travesties of where Bible verse makers mess up. See, chapter 11, verse 1 begins, really ties in with verse 33. Paul is saying, I, in order for me to glorify God, I give up my rights. I seek the good of my neighbor. I do this so that they may be saved. And what does he say? Church, imitate me. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant. Why? That I may win some of them. That I may win more of them. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, he is telling us as a church to give up our rights so that God may be glorified and our unbelieving friends and neighbors may see his glorious radiance flowing through our lives. He's saying, I glorify God by giving up my freedom in Christ. I have done this for the sake of the gospel so that I might win more to Christ. Do like I do. Imitate me. Live like me. Do it for the sake of the gospel so that Jesus' name would be lifted up, so that God would be glorified. When the name of Jesus is lifted up, God is glorified. When the name of Jesus is brought down, God is dishonored. Every moment of our lives, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, what are we doing that for? Is God glorious in us? Is Jesus radiantly shining out of us? Or is this image marred and dirty because our lives are marred and dirty? And here's the amazing thing about the gospel. Yes, we are all stand condemned sinful. We've already seen that in Corinthians but that are when we recognize our sin, when we confess our sin to one another, what do we do? We proclaim God's forgiveness in Christ. So living before an unbelieving world does not mean you look like a perfect saint. I think the church has actually done a disservice to unbelievers because we have sought to look too holy. We have not talked about our sin. We stayed quiet about our addiction to pornography and lust, our adulteries. We stayed quiet about all this. And you know what? The world looks at us and says, I can't attain that because I'm addicted. I can't reach that level because I struggle. What we should be saying as the church is, I struggle too. My sin is great, but my Savior is greater. And that lifts up Christ. 
We don't need, we in one sense, yes, we should be ashamed of our, of our sin. That should cause us deep sorrow, which leads to repentance. But we should find great joy in the fact that we have a Savior who forgives our sins. Don't hide that from unbelievers. Don't put up a front like everything's great and you got the perfect Christian life because you are doing a disservice to those who don't believe. You are telling them that there's nothing to Christianity. We have nothing to offer. What do we offer to Christianity? A Savior who forgives sins. So brothers and sisters, accept your sin. Sorrow over it. Lament over it. But exalt the Savior who forgives you before the watching world. And when you do that, God will be glorified. Jesus will be lifted up. The Savior who takes our sins and casts them as far as the east is from the west. When our lives reflect that truth, God is glorified. He is lifted up. He gets the praise, the glory, and the honor as the Savior of sinners. Let us glorify God in all we do. The church is in need of Christ. The world is in need of Christ. And make no mistake, the world is watching. Let us pray. Father, help us to glorify you by seeking the good of our neighbors. Help us to glorify you by not being afraid to, not that we exalt our sin or lift up our sin or celebrate our sin. We, it's just the opposite. We mourn and weep over our sin. But help us to celebrate and worship and give glorious radiance. Exalt Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, what the world needs. Help us to become such reflectors of your perfect, beautiful image, you as the Savior of the world, you as the one who came to die, to give your life as a ransom for many. Help us to, in our actions, in our words, in our lives, to glorify you so that others may see the hope within us and seek to know why that hope is there. Give hope within us. Help us to find forgiveness for our sins and redemption in Christ. We give you praise with thankful hearts. And it's in your great name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.